people assume that negotiation is all about the bark and the bite, right? That assertiveness. And that's why I think so many women feel that they're not effective negotiators because they don't see themselves as having the capacity to be, to be assertive. And for me, like assertiveness is only one of a number of factors. Welcome to the Fueling Deals podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up. So buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Cindy Watson. She is the founder of Watson Labor Law, but more recently, the founder of Women on Purpose and the creator of the Art of Feminine Negotiation Program. Her book, The Art of Feminine Negotiation, How to Get What You Want from the Boardroom to the Bedroom, is due out this year. And I am so excited to have Cindy on the show. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Corey. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So listen, you know, you are a uh, fellow uh, negotiating expert. Um, I often get asked uh, about the difference between men and women in negotiating, and I want to jump into that. I want to jump into your experience and um, with negotiating and, and, and everything else you do as an attorney. But before we do that, I want to take you back. And when you were a little girl growing up, what did you want to be? Because uh, maybe I'm wrong, but... Uh, Maybe it wasn't uh, an attorney and and negotiating author and trainer and expert. Yeah, it's funny you ask that because I think that's one of the things that ultimately ended up prompting me to go on this new mission about women on purpose and particularly for the art of feminine negotiation. Because when I was young, I grew up in a low rental apartment complex in what was considered a tough neighborhood. I didn't know it at the time until much later in life. For me, it was just home. But um, I was in love with my... with the creative side. I love to write like fiction, crazy outlandish stories. I love to sing. I love to dance. And coming from not much money, you know, I also did well academically. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of pressure, not too subtle pressure put to pursue a more traditional path and something, frankly, that was going to make some money. So um, probably I decided when I realized math and science wasn't my thing relatively early in my academic career to be a lawyer, but definitely my younger self did not, absolutely did not aspire to be a lawyer. I wanted something much more creative. So I love it. Now, now you're uh, you're in Toronto now. Is that where you grew up? Uh, yeah, grew up in Scarborough, um, but uh, sort of born and bred then in uh, Toronto. And I'm actually living in Muskoka now, but most of my business is out of Toronto still. So great. So, uh, however you define this, what would you consider your first business to be? Uh, what do you mean by that? The, like the first time I started a business? Yeah, and and, and that could have you know that could be. As an adult, as a real business, yep. it could be something you did as a kid that you considered a business, you know, whatever that means to you. Yeah, I definitely, I dappled as a kid. I was uh, not surprisingly given my background. I was a ferocious saver. Um, but I would say my first real business experience was as a lawyer. And, um, and it's kind of ironic because I'd, sometimes not knowing is the greatest gift we can have. Our, our ignorance actually launches us into areas that otherwise we may have been too nervous to go into. Because I 
you know, coming from where I did, I was super driven. I, I find, you know, people who come from that background tend to either be really driven or to go the other way and just feel not enough. But I was really driven. So I went, you know, high school to university to law school, always going for those straight A's. And I got a job at, you know, I wanted to specialize in social justice law. So, and I was lucky enough to land a job at one of the top labor firms in the country. And after only three years, I was up for a partnership, which was super early. But I just suddenly knew I didn't want to be there, right? And part of it was that it was a really male-dominated firm. But for a whole host of reasons, I loved what I did. I loved my clients and I didn't want to be there. And this is where I say the benefit of not knowing any better. So I left and I decided I was going to start my own law firm, which in hindsight was such a preposterous, you know, I was three years out of, of being called to the bar. I had no credit whatsoever to speak of. I had no client base that I could draw on, but I just... I think because I'd worked hard and always done well, I just assumed it would fall into place. And luckily, things did. Uh, you know, I, I, I happened to find, which I now know at the time I didn't, a, a young uh, woman who was working in a position at the bank who took a chance on me and gave me a pretty minor line of credit, but it was enough to get me kickstarted and things took off from there. So. I, I got to tell you, I, I am, uh, you know, people say to me, I started early because I was six years out of school when I started my own firm out of law school. And, um, you know, and I, a very similar story. I mean, uh, you know, I, I actually, um, I mean, I came from a lower middle class background. Yeah. Around. We, yeah. we, you know, we weren't poor, but there was always food on the table. But, you know, there wasn't, uh, we didn't go out to eat. We didn't go, um, we didn't go yeah. on vacation. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, but I, uh, you know, I, I'd made some good money as a, as a young lawyer in a big New York City firm. But, you know, I was in my 20s. And I was spending more than I made. And uh, when I decided to launch my own firm, I remember going to uh, a seminar at the New York, New York City Bar Association. And there was a guy named James Jay Foonberg who wrote a book on how to start your own law firm. And he was speaking there. Yeah. And he said, he said you needed 40 grand in the bank. But I don't know how he came up with that number, but he said you needed <laughs> 40,000 in the bank. And I was 40,000 in debt. Yeah, um, I was going to say, so, <laughs> I hadn't heard that or I wasn't <laughs> where I am today. <laughs> oh, exactly. You know, but, but, you know, my, 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 my joke is I figured, you know, and it was funny because it was almost exactly like I was literally 40,000 in debt and he said, you needed 40,000 in the bank. And I said, oh, you know, I'm so close. I'm just one horizontal, <laughs> one horizontal line off, you know, it was negative versus positive. It's just, it's just one horizontal line. Yeah. See, you're braver though. You went for it even knowing not. See, I, 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 I can at least claim total ignorance. So you definitely were braver than I was. <laughs> yeah, well, bra bra braver or stupider, you know, it depends on how you look at it. So, you know, you said something earlier. I'd love to, you know, uh, jump in, uh, access this conversation about, about negotiating and about, um, the conversation of, of, you know, of women and, and men negotiating. Um, you know, you said something earlier, which is really interesting, which relates to something that popped into my mind. Um, you know, which is the conversation of, Hey, out of your background, you know, either somebody becomes, you know, really driven and takes it on or whatever it goes the other way. And, um, it sort of triggered a, a thought in my mind about the conversation of owning your value. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's an important thing that I talk about. And, and, you know, there are things like background, like gender, like other things that sometimes affect. And listen, I think, I think actually most people have, uh, you know, struggle at least uh, early on with owning their value, no matter where Absolutely. they come from. But, 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 but I think there are factors that fall into that a little more. So before I say more about my thoughts on that, I'd love <laughs> to hear I'd love to hear your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, I agree with you absolutely, Corey. And I, I think it affects uh, across the board. I think everybody 
has issues, you know, growing up that stay with us. You know, I call it for, for women, it's that little girl. And for guys, it's that little boy that still stays in there. That little part of you that always feels a little less than, maybe that you don't belong. But I think there are dramatic differences in that. I think everybody has a little bit of that. But I think definitely class is one big issue. I think there's no question that when you come from a background where you don't have um, sort of entitlement and where you don't have opportunities sort of dropped on your lap, where there aren't expectations of you being able to achieve certain certain things. I think there's definitely a much stronger sense of that not enough or less than, that insecurity. And again, from my perspective, that manifests one of two ways. You either go, you know, to heck with that and you get really driven to overcome that and to to prove yourself and to show the world. And I don't even know, I don't, not that I don't know, I don't believe that's a conscious decision. I think it's more just a subconscious, almost primal drive to prove the world wrong, you know, that you do have value. Or I, I think part of the problem with so many people who come from backgrounds, the reason they don't achieve their full potential is that they never step into that sense of trying to push past that sense of not being enough. And then it holds them back their whole life. But for me, my real passion right now, and the reason I started uh, Women on Purpose, founded it, was I think that that hits much harder for women. Um, I think it's an issue of class. I think it's an issue of race. I think we see it across the board as well, different cultural backgrounds. Um, But in particular for women, and in particular for women of color, um, you know, you have so much more of, you know, just generation after generation of conditioning. And I I don't want to go too far down that road, but I think that definitely sets women off at a distinct disadvantage. And and I think that's where you end up getting the, the problem in negotiations with women in particular is that, you know, it has women again, I think, going in one of two directions. So, I, yeah, I think where you come from and your gender and your culture and your class background all have a profound impact on your sense of self and on your ability to own your value. Yeah, well, listen, you and I definitely agree there. I mean, I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on record in interviews and videos because I, I get this uh, question all the time. It's a very you know, popular question, you know, the difference between men and women in negotiating. And, you know, and one of the things I say, you know, listen, I always give two caveats up front where I say, yeah, anything I'm going to say, a generalization, of course, yeah. doesn't apply across the board. There's, you know, there's, there's no, there are exceptions. There are different people. There's a spectrum in terms of people, you know, how women are and men are. And I also, of course, say that, you know, uh, that I want to acknowledge that that question and that conversation and my response is going to be addressing gender as a, as a you know, a binary male, female. Sure. And, you know, there are people identify along the spectrum yeah. you know, of gender fluidity. So I want to acknowledge that as well. So with those acknowledgements out of the way, um, you know, one of the things I talk about is I think actually the, uh, uh, the biggest thing for women, uh, again, with the, with the uh, thing that everybody has, struggles with, I find it much more prevalent with women that about not owning their value, not be willing to be able to uh, not be, being willing to stand up for their value. It, you know, it shows up in the willingness to ask for a raise, the, uh, how they, if they're entrepreneurs, uh, how they choose to charge for their services. Um, and yeah, and I think there's a lot of cultural and, you know, societal, uh, uh, paradigm reasons for that. Um, but is you know, it's definitely, uh, an issue I find uh, women have more work to do on what, you know, and more struggle with. Yeah, and I think that starts as early as kindergarten. I mean, when you you read all of the studies on it, it it was shocking even to me. I mean, I I thought I had a really heightened sense of awareness about this issue, but the more I started researching um, for my, because I also I have a book, Myth of a Man's World, as well. That but and in doing the research for that book, 
As early as kindergarten, young boys get their entire sense of self and their validation and they get rewarded when they, you know, beat their chest and when they brag and pump themselves up. And by contrast, from as early as I say kindergarten, young girls get shunned and immediately treated as outsiders. So, and it's remarkable to see how quickly they learn to be very self-effacing. And and you see, and that continues to adulthood with women with this, oh, this old thing, you know, (laughs) I mean this, oh, every time, you know, not being able to take a compliment, always deflect it. And for negotiations, I think that ends up manifesting in one of two ways. You get either women who have that strong sense of that not enough, and they feel their very strong perception is that they're not effective negotiators. Or at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think you see women overcompensating and adopting what they believe is a more masculine mode of negotiating because they believe that's the only way to succeed. And frankly, neither are true. I think it's so important we start debunking those myths. And and this may be a little controversial, so I will I was going to say apologize in advance, but I actually don't make apologies for it typically. I actually believe that when women step into their natural feminine strengths as negotiators, I, I call it our secret weapon, one of our secret weapons, if they get comfortable just stepping into their natural feminine intuitive negotiation styles, I think women actually can be, and I, this is a generalization again, obviously, there's, everything's individualized, but can be much more effective negotiators than men or people operating from a more masculine style of negotiation. Listen, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to dispute that. I, you know, I, I would. Uh, there's some people who probably would uh, read my book, Authentic Negotiating, and and identify a lot of what I talk about as you know as what is more uh, typically uh, you know identified as as um, as feminine. In that, you know, I talk a lot about the inner work. You know, the, the negotiations and in a game. I talk about um, you know fear, scarcity, anger, ego, upset. I you know I don't I don't talk I don't teach tactical. Uh, I mean you know there's a lot of tactics out there that are manipulative and there are some that are good. But but the point is for me it's always an inner game. And you know you talked about the the boys uh, as they grow up. You know uh, I mean there's part of it that's good in that they're taught to maybe more on their value or at least fight mm-hmm. for it, you yeah. know, but that, but that chest banging, you know, and table banging and chest, you know, thing that you mentioned is one of the problems with men in negotiations sometimes is that tough guy, you know, bang the table, uh, trying to, you know, leverage people uh, approach to negotiating, which is more prevalent in my experience with men. Yeah, I love that approach. And it's funny because I think, uh, you know, I said about the one secret weapon being that, you know, people don't expect women to be good negotiators. So that can be a real advantage. Um, But also, I think tying into what you said with the chest banging, people assume that negotiation is all about the bark and the bite, right? That assertiveness. And that's why I think so many women feel that they're not effective negotiators because they don't see themselves as having the capacity to to be assertive. And for me, like, Assertiveness is only one of a number of factors. I mean, rapport building, empathy, flexibility, intuition, trustworthiness. These are all key skills that you need to be a really effective negotiator. And these are all things that are more typically associated as feminine traits. And ironically, even with assertiveness, when women are negotiating for somebody else or advocating is a better word, when women are advocating for somebody else, whether particularly somebody they care about, you know, a child is the best example of that, but there are numerous others look out like they're going to invoke that mama bear and they so it's not a question of capability it's a question of mindset and women have to get over that so I'm often saying to women you know 
you can invoke that mama bear for somebody else. Think about that little bear cub inside of you. Like we were saying earlier about the little girl and the little boy. We all have that little bear cub inside us. So invoke your mama bear for your own little bear cub inside you because, and then you are unstoppable. You're the complete package. If you tap into those natural negotiation skills and you step in with some comfort to your assertiveness when you need it, look out. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think uh, the other distinction I would draw is the difference between um, you know, assertiveness and aggressiveness, right? Yes. Um, because some of the, some of the, uh, you know, I think those words get conflated sometimes and people think assertiveness means, you know, you're going to be banging the table and yelling and screaming. And the truth is the best negotiators that I know are actually the ones that are, have that quiet confidence and they Absolutely. assert their provision strongly, but they don't need to raise their voice. They don't need to de- uh, bang the table. They don't need to threaten to, you know, play games to walk out. Um, you know, and I, I think that's that's much stronger than the than the people who are aggressive. The people who are truly assertive without being aggressive. Absolutely. And if I can, you know, I'll get a little vulnerable myself here for a moment because I think that was something that I was guilty of for a period. And and it wasn't until I was able to sort of, you know, had an incident with my son and was able to look back that I really recognized in myself. And that's why I say for for the women, they either overcompensate. And I think you see that whether it's women CEOs or police officers or in their negotiation, there's that tendency sometimes to feel the need. And I, I think we're starting to get over that. I think we're seeing some generational shifts, which is great. But Certainly, I think, you know, my generation, the generation before me, the generation just after me, no question that there's that sense that if you're going to make it in what we perceive to be a man's world, then you need to really come at it with uh, with everything you've got. And there was an absolute conflation of aggressive with assertive. And for myself, I remember taking a negotiation course in law school. And the entire course ended up being based on, our marks ended up being based on our negotiation, which I didn't know I probably wouldn't have taken the course, to be honest. <laughs> was, so you're basically, we're given a series of um, simulated negotiations that you had to do. And we were broken into these arbitrary you know, sort of couplings throughout the course of the year. You had the one hour class to come to a negotiated settlement. And as it turns out, and if you didn't get a settlement in that one hour, you were, you got a zero, which you can imagine in law school, if you remember how competitive it already is, right? Sure. But whoever ended up getting the highest monetary amount, and sadly, and I think this is one of the problems with what we're taught as a society about negotiation, not just in law school, but I found it disappointing that this was in law school, there was zero marks or acknowledgement for creative thinking or outside the box or win-win solutions, which really is what a good negotiation should be about. It was all about if you, you know, whoever got the highest amount of money got the highest mark. But Long story short, I went through that year and I was able to, and you know, I'm not bragging here, it shocked me as much as anybody, but I won virtually every single simulated negotiation, which got harder and harder to do as the year went on because everybody comes gunning, of course, assuming you're this barracuda. And um, and I wasn't, ironically, at that point, and it wasn't until later I realized I was all about that rapport building and I'd immediately sit down as quickly as I can. What do you need? What is it you're looking for on the other side? Let's find something so that we can both win out of this, you know, trying to show empathy to get in their headspace, using my intuitions, trying to build that trust. Then I started the practice of law. And as you no doubt, you know, remember from particularly in New York, all of the positive reinforcement I got was when I was tearing people apart on the other side. And especially as you can imagine in labor law, representing trade unions and coming in as a woman, which back at that time, I was typically the only woman in the room, my my clients, adjudicator, everybody. So you, I started adopting that, and I really reached a period myself, if I'm, as I say, being vulnerable here, Court, where I, 
I, well, I was known as the barracuda or the piranha or whatever. And at, at that stage, it was, you know, intended by my clients as being this absolute compliment. But then, you know, I got married, had three kids in three years. And, you know, I was having a discussion with my son the one day. I thought it was just a discussion. And all of a sudden, he, and I could just see his frustration. And he turns to me, he's like, for God's sake, mom, does every conversation with you have to be an argument that you win? And <laughs> it, was, it ripped my heart out, right? And I really wow. held a mirror up to me. And it was only then that I reflected back and realized I had lost my sense of self because I was naturally a really effective negotiator using my natural feminine traits without even realizing it and then got you know, bamboozled into thinking I had to become something else and had to be this aggressive persona to be effective. So that was a massive mind shift for me. And that's what really prompted me to start the Art of Feminine Negotiation programming as well, to have women, those women who feel less than, let them step into their feminine power. But those women who are overcompensating, you may still get good results, but boy, there's a big price to pay for that, Corey. No, no question. Listen, I, I always say, and this applies, you know, to men and women, um, you know, there, there are only two types of negotiations. Uh, one is in, and this is a very, very, especially because I negotiate in business, you know, yeah. for deals, relationships, strategic alliances, uh, contracts, that kind of stuff. Um, but in, in most situations, uh, you know, th- there's one type of deal, which is basically it's a negotiation that is either going to be the start of yes. or the continuation of an ongoing relationship. Absolutely. And even in labor, you know, management relations, which is a tough area. And I did some of that very early in my career. Um, uh, you know, I don't really do it now, but, uh, you know, but, but listen, management and labor have to live together. And unfortunately, Absolutely. sometimes they, they can't, but, you know, but, uh, so, so you have that, right. Or if somebody's, you know, hiring somebody and negotiating or they're negotiating with a vendor or to buy a company or to hire somebody, whatever it is, I mean, it's all ongoing relationships. So, you know, if you quote unquote, win the negotiation by beating somebody over the head, how does that affect the relationship? And then the other thing I say is that even in situations where, you know, it is kind of a one-off, um, listen, it's not a, it's not a, just a cliche. It's a small world and a small business Absolutely. world and, and people get reputations. Yeah. And even I go further than that. I think it does affect that. And I, I wasn't a big believer when I was younger, but as you get older, you realize that whole, what goes around comes around and that sort of karma piece or whatever you want to call it. But you don't always have to go for the juggler and you frankly don't always even have to get to the other person's bottom line. And if I could use a sort of a, maybe a silly analogy, but I remember being young and the first time I went to Mexico, right. And you've got your bartering on the beach and I loved, I loved the game of it. Right. And the back and the forth and, and then, it was at some point later though that I started realizing even if I could negotiate to get that blanket on the beach for something way less than its value I didn't have to and when you don't have to you know leave that extra on the table when it's appropriate. You know, winning a negotiation doesn't mean that you've dropped the other person down to their absolute bare bottom line. That's not the sign to me of an effective or mature negotiator. And negotiation is probably the single most important skill we're going to learn. Like I think people underestimate how much of our life is a negotiation, whether it's with your your partner, your kids, your boss, you know, deciding what movie you go to is is in some form a negotiation. So I, I, I say that as well. We're negotiating every day. And I, and I, I got to tell you something, Cindy, I had that same experience where, you know, I, I used to travel, you know, to other countries and be in the bazaars or whatever it was. And yeah, and I, or on the beach and I would negotiate them down because it was just the way I was. And yeah. then, you know, I had that same, I had that same realization. I, you know, I, I said to myself, well, first of all, I, I think part of it was just, you know, maturing. The other thing was, was shifting my relationship to money 
Yes. And, uh, you know, fundamentally shifting my relationship to money uh, and coming from an abundance uh, place and not a scarcity place. And then sort of realizing like, wait a second, right? I just saved $3, which for me is meaningless from somebody who is trying to feed their family in Mexico, who that $3 is, you know, could be food for a week. And like, so uh, you know, I like all the satisfaction out of winning that negotiation. It went away when I shifted that, you know, that 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 mindset around that. Oh, same here. That was exactly my epiphany. That's funny. We're yeah. See, I, I heard that I would really like you, and I did. I can see <laughs> so, so, so uh, fueling deals podcast listeners, just to uh, to bring you in on that little inside joke. Um, uh, Cindy was introduced to me by my amazing wife, uh, Ra, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, she, she, Ra told me, you need to have Cindy on the podcast, and uh, I told her uh, before we uh, started here that usually I do vetting, but, uh, you know, when my wife says you need to have somebody on the podcast, <laughs> that's all the vetting I need, and, and obviously, from the interview so far, it was not a mistake, so. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, great. and the first sign of a great negotiator, obviously, when you know to just uh, <laughs> right. your wife and... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, so uh, it, you know, in the workshops you do and in your upcoming book, uh, talk to me a little bit more about some of the things that you uh, uh, teach women uh, about, uh, you know, negotiating. Yeah, I'd say a big part of it, as you say, is is knowing your worth, ironically, so that it's not going to come as a surprise to you that there's a, a big chunk at the front end, I think, whether I'm doing workshops or weekend retreats with women or in the book as well, um, is making that mindset shift. And awareness is the first piece of that. I think so many women are just not aware of how deeply the conditioning runs. And you know, again, just another study like SAT studies, bringing something like this to their attention, that for SATs in the US, they've done studies. And it was shocking even to me that young women going in to write their SATs, they did a control group where half the control group just filled out the normal sort of preemptive information. And the other half of the control group just had to check off a box to to identify their gender, male or female. And consistently in pretty staggering numbers, Corey, the women who had to, these young women who had to identify their gender, that was it. Simply the act of identifying their gender had them underperformed. They consistently underperformed on their SATs. So clearly there's um, a lot of work that I do about identifying, you know, whether it's those kindergarten or the SAT or some of our unconscious biases. And, and that's on both sides. Men and women both um, both suffer from unconscious biases and as against each other and internally within each of their respective genders as well. So do a lot of work around that mindset and having women really know their worth. Um, but the big thing I think is women consistently tend to make less money. And part of that problem you know, they've got to, it's easy to point the finger and say, oh, men are being exploitative or whatever. But really my focus is not that at all because I believe the real work needs to be done within women internally. They mm-hmm. need to start owning that inner worth. They need to start recognizing that part of the problem is frankly, they're not asking. Yeah. You know, women just don't ask. When when you get, to, you look at the studies about when people are offered their initial salary when they start a job, over 60% of men will negotiate that initial job offer salary. Only 7% of women do. And of that rarefied seven percent who do they typically ask for significantly less like their aspirational levels are low and you know apparently 45 percent of women suffer from the belief that they can't change their circumstances well just imagine going into negotiations if you don't believe at the outset that you have the capacity to change your circumstances that's a pretty fundamental problem to being able to negotiate so i deal a lot with that ask 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 um 
Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just saying that. I mean, that that's that's huge. And 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 I think you know you raised a couple of things in there. I mean, one is you know this is where it gets back to a lot of my work was which is the mindset conversation. You know, and it's why it drives me crazy uh, that there are so many uh, negotiating training out there that only focus on the tactical. Yes. You know, if uh, you know if they do this, you do that. If you do that, they do this. And this counterattack this to the counterattack this to the counterattack this. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it becomes really manipulative and game playing. But even, you know, even where there, I mean, listen, there's some appropriate uh, tactics to learn, but, but if you don't learn the underlying stuff, it's like you said, if, if somebody goes in with a significant limiting belief as to their value, as to their ability to ask, as to their entitlement to, you know, to even stand up for themselves, then I don't care what you teach them a, on a tactical level. It's not going to make that much difference. Yeah. And, it, and I'd actually go a step further and say it's counterproductive because I think the pride, and I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. And I think of any of the sort of so-called education I got, absolutely focused on tactics. And I really quickly dismiss that because once you, when you have that confidence about your ability to own your value and when you know what your reservation price is going to be and you know how sort of the fundamentals of going in there with confidence and being prepared to ask and being prepared to get no's and knowing that you're going to be able to deal with that however it comes up, that is infinitely more powerful than what I call mind games about, you know, who's sitting higher in the chair or who's at the position. I, I don't care whether somebody's standing while I'm sitting over me. They're, I'm confident that they're not going to get me to a position I don't want to get to. So you can stand or sit or <laughs> turn upside down. I don't, it is not going to affect me. So for me, that big key is getting like a very small part of it. And it only comes later. Uh, and when I'm doing my one-on-one -on -one coaching for some people, we don't even get to tactics until, until I'm really confident that people have that inner confidence and that they know their worth and that they are comfortable getting in there and asking. And, and one of the exercises I, I do with them about that, because I think a big part of that is conditioning, but part of it is that that fear of no, that fear of rejection that women have. So I actually do exercises with the women in my in my workshops or in my coaching, and I lay it out in the book as well, um, is to, to get them to actively go for the no. And I think Richard Fenton wrote a book on it, on, on that. And it, so get out there now and start practicing. And I don't care if you're really not comfortable now, go to yard sales if you have to. Go to garage sales until, you know, negotiate when you're on those vacations. Even if you don't want to, just start getting your comfort. And in fact, make it a game where you turn it on its head. Instead of the the anxiety that comes from knowing you're trying to get a yes, actively go out and try and get as many no's as you can. So set a target for yourself that, you know, if you want, you know, if you're in sales, for example, if I know I need 10 sales this week, set a target for yourself that you're going to go for 100 no's. A, you're going to push yourself harder, but B, you start desensitizing yourself to the word. And it is a really effective mind shift for people when they start going for the no and they the power of that word suddenly becomes less and less and less they're way more comfortable than when they need to get in there and start asking for what they want and they're going to get more and they're going to get better results yeah but yeah build that muscle when it doesn't count right absolutely uh, i love that you know i i, I think about um uh, there's a woman that uh, both uh, my wife and you know and I know uh, well who's who's one of the top executives at, at Citigroup and um, and uh, I remember talking to her one time because you know in this conversation because you know asking for raises and promotions is an area that um, as you alluded to that um, you know women don't do. Uh, 
aren't as strong in because of the conditioning and, and that kind of stuff because it, it, it hits everything, right? It hits yeah. the value, it hits asking, it's, it hits the fear of rejection, it, it yes, hits all that stuff that you, that you raise. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things, you know, I, I was interviewed for an article one time and, uh, you know, asked about how uh, people, but specifically women, because it was it was a reporter that focused on women, um, you know, could could deal with that. And I relayed this story because I thought it was important. And one of the things that this person does is she says she prepares. She starts preparing for her next year's salary and promotion negotiation or discussion the the day after the last one happens. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and what she does is she keeps track because uh, listen, there is a part of this as well. You know, first of all, in general, uh, you know, there's this thought, especially in big companies, that a lot of times the uh, the management only you know forgets what you've done, except in the last you know 30 days or whatever. So yeah. what you've done all year doesn't matter, and that's in general. Yeah. But but also there is a dynamic where um, you know, let's face it, uh, there is the societal conditioning on the on the other side as well, and um, you know, there are you know I don't want to do cross the board, but there are certain men who may their tendency may be, even if it's subconscious, to devalue women's contributions yeah. uh, even more. Um, so what she does is she's, she keeps track of all of her accomplishments, like yeah. keeps a diary on it yeah. the whole year. Because, listen, it's hard to think back. So, you know, so she keeps it contemporaneously. And then when she goes in to have that discussion about raises, promotions, bonuses at the end of the year, right, she makes a case for it. She has her evidence. She makes a case. She talks about what she, you know, what she did in February and how much, uh, you know, she saved the company in money or how much revenue she increased or how they grew, whatever it was, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's just a, it's an interesting piece. And I think it also builds that muscle of, uh, you know, which, I mean, at this point, it's second nature to her. But yeah. I think early on, it built that muscle of owning her value because she actually, died, you know, basically simultaneous track of her accomplishments. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you say that because that was going to be the next point. That's one of the chapters, key chapters in my book is the preparation piece. It is so important but for, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I think the two go hand in hand. The more prepared you are, the more confident you are. And women do tend to, I, I think they get undervalued, but I think they also devalue themselves. And yes. part of that comes from, I mean, women, it's, it's a simple fact right now. And again, it's just starting to change the awareness, but women get interrupted more by both men and women, interestingly, like significantly more more likely to be interrupted. Women are much more likely to have their ideas co-opted and they sort of sit back and take it. So one of the things that I do advise women to do is start keeping this record, keep a, you know, a brag sheet and keep track of everything you've done and including both sort of those, the concrete numbers. So have you brought in more clients or sales or, you know, projects, depending on whatever your line of work is, but also what I would call the social proof, every commendation, every letter of thanks that you received, like build that and then when you're get, getting in to go for whether it's a promotion or a salary increase or whatever it is, go back, finesse all of, the, all of the work that you've done, take a look at everything that you've accomplished in that last year, and also then think prospectively, what are your creative ideas for the year coming up? What are you planning to offer? What value are you going to be able to bring to the table? And having gone over everything you've already accomplished, you're already coming from a place with a little more confidence to do it. And I'd go a step further and say, then prepare a hard copy of her proposal, literally setting out what some of your major accomplishments have been, what your thoughts are. And it gives you that extra little boost of confidence and credibility. If mm -hmm particularly if somebody has the potential to try and undervalue you, you're coming prepared, which is a whole different mindset when you go into those negotiations. So, 
I, I love it. I feel like, listen, you, you and I could talk for a week, but, but, but first of all, we have other things to do. And second of all, uh, no matter how engaging we are, I don't think uh, podcast listeners will listen to us for a week. So, uh, so we're just, we're just going to have, have to have you back on when your book launches and, uh, and we'll talk some more. Um, so before I get to my last question, uh, you, you have provided so much value for people. I want to make sure that they know where they can reach you, find out more about your seminars, your coaching, and, and, you know, and get on, uh, uh, you know, tap into where they'll get noticed uh, when your book does come out. Uh, what's the best place for people to find out more information about you, Cindy? Oh, well, thanks. Um, yeah, and this has been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for that. So um, email is one. So they can email me at Cindy at womenonpurpose.ca. So note it's .ca, not .com. So Cindy at womenonpurpose.ca. And if they're interested, actually, for your listeners, I'm happy to offer, I have a women on purpose, how to be a women on purpose uh, free ebook. It's about 50 something pages long. Happy to offer it as a free gift. If they're interested, have them just uh, reach out an email. Let me know that they heard me on your show and I am happy to hook them up with a, with a free ebook. Uh, if they want to join the Facebook community, it's facebook.com slash community, or they can check out my webpage at womenonpurpose.ca. Oh, that's great. I'm sure uh, people are definitely going to want to find out more. Um, so my last question that I always end the podcast with um, is this. It's, uh, so one of my highest values is, is authenticity. Um, and I look at authenticity as something different than external morals or integrity, which, you know, are, uh, their own conversations are important. But authenticity is, is a conversation for me of alignment with our inner truth, with who we are. And having our, our business decisions, our negotiations, uh, our lives, uh, you know, run from that place. It's sort of like, you know, when you and I talked about the fact we used to negotiate with the, with the beach vendor in Mexico, and now we don't, I, you know, yeah. I, I feel that's an example of how we both trued up to say, hey, is this who we really want to be? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so uh, I would love to hear uh, your take on authenticity, how it plays into your life and business and, and, and the way you train people in negotiation, uh, you know, and how you, um, you know, and what do you do to stay authentic? Yeah, I love that question, Corey. Um, I, I think a couple of things. I, I, first, I, I'm thrilled that you asked that. I think it's something that as a society, we don't do enough. Um, and I think everybody can value, frankly, by consistently, like on a regular basis, conscientiously checking in with themselves to say, who do I want to be? Who do I want to show up? So I tend to uh, pick words for myself that I want to show up for generally, but in particular, like if I'm coming home from work and I'm, you know, I've had a particularly rough day, it's like, okay, how do I want to show up right now when I walk in that front door with the kids? Do you know, I want to be present, for example, right? I want to be giving, I want to be engaged, whatever it is. So, and I try and live to that in my, you know, when you're, whether you're going into a meeting, whether it's on a day, but also to have overall put them on a sticky on your mirror in the morning so that you see those words every day, right? In terms of, but also just be natural. We are such a society now with the Instagram. I don't know, maybe it's an age thing and I'm dating myself here, but with all of the posed selfies and putting forth, there's so much pressure on people to be something other than just their true authentic self. And there's such beauty in somebody who's just comfortable in their own skin. And, and that would be the message I would give to the women that I train as well, which is whether it's in negotiation, to me, one of the most important things is tap into your negotiate, natural negotiating style. Be yourself. You don't need to be anybody other than your most gorgeous, 
highest, best version of yourself. And I am trying every day to work on myself to live into that. And it's an ongoing work in progress. I fully confess that. And I think anybody who's being honest with themselves, it will always be an ongoing work in progress. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And there are layers and layers, right? Yes. <laughs> that onion is that. <laughs> Listen, Cindy, thank you so much for being on the show. I so appreciate having you. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely. You've been an absolute pleasure. So, And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week... Corey Kupfer, signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth. 